Hello, listeners. Before we begin, a few brief content warnings. This episode contains profanity, brief discussion of suicide, mentions of killing, including the murder of family members, and mentions of cannibalism. Take care of yourselves while listening. And now, here we go. and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature person and sort of linguist type. And I'm Allison, your uh, Roman archaeologist and late antiquity disaster person. Yeah. All right. So today we are going to be discussing not one specific piece of media, but a kind of mixtape of music, songs from the artist The Mountain Goats. I say the artist rather than the band because I'm a little unclear on what their deal is. I will, we'll, we'll clarify this in a second. We're, because we're talking about kind of a playlist of things as opposed to one thing we're not gonna do a big summary off the top we are just gonna talk about them as we go along yeah some quick housekeeping before we jump right in here we just quickly wanted to give a shout out to anybody who has come to us either via twitter interaction or just like in dms or in private however you reached out to us to recommend your favorite piece of media that is classical in nature We don't per se take requests in that if you ask us to cover something, we'll definitely do it right away. But we have a lot of stuff on our list already and getting a specific and personal recommendation from somebody definitely makes it more likely that we're going to do that thing sooner because then we know not only like has it been recommended because it's interesting, but also somebody's interested in hearing us talk about it. So you should feel free to reach out to us if there's some particular piece of media that you really think we should talk about. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, <laughs> not, Allison? No, not really. Okay. So yeah, let's let's dive in. So in place of our in place of our usual summary section. Allison, you know the Mountain Goats better than I do as, like, as far as music goes. Can you, like, what's their deal? So their deal is that the Mountain Goats is a, it's a musical project by our boy, uh, Mr. Goats, which I don't know where you got that from, but it's hilarious. Oh, I just started calling him that. So to be clear, the guy's name is John Darnielle, but I refer to him almost exclusively as Mr. Goats. So I will probably refer to him as Mr. Goats multiple times throughout this podcast, and I am talking about John Darnielle, who is the front man, I guess? Yeah, so... Mountain Goats is like a a musical project that he started in the, like, early 90s, where he basically just recorded himself singing into a boombox with a guitar (laughs) and that is characteristic of a lot of the early mountain goat stuff and then at some point in the 2000s he started like working with band members and recording stuff in a studio so now there are a few band members i think a lot of his band band members have actually been people who've been playing with him probably for like the past like 10 to 15 years so now they sort of exist as a band but 
there's definitely a history that was just John Darnielle, and it is still, like, his sort of baby. Like, he does all of the, like, songwriting. He is, like, songwriter behind the project. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, for anybody who's not familiar with the Mountain Goats, it's worth saying that, like, one of the things that is attractive about their music and John Darnielle as, like, a musician is that the songwriting is really good. Like, his lyrics are really interesting. And, I don't know, to me, to me, it's almost like listening to, um, to, like, Neil Young, somebody like that, who, like, I love Neil Young, but he can't sing. (laughs) But it's fine, because his music is, like, interesting, and his lyrics are really good. In that same way, for me, my relationship to the Mountain Goats is that, although I'm not usually one for, like, like folky stuff that's not mm-hmm. really the pref- my preferred genre of music their lyrics are so good and also they produce such a wide variety of stuff that there's probably and like so much music that there's probably something in the mountain goats catalog for everybody yeah i will say so like genre wise it it's kind of a blend of like indie rock and like folk like there's it kind of you know there's there's songs that are like heavy guitar and yelling but there's also songs that are like soft acoustic guitar like there's a lot of there's a variety in the catalog but yeah Yeah. if you're wondering like what sort of genre we're working in that's the genre yeah so even on this little mixtape that we put together of like classically influenced music from their discography there's a pretty big variety in sound now there's also like so this mixtape, um, just to be clear, there we put together this mixtape, we put it together as a playlist on Spotify. There will be a link to this playlist in the description of the episode, and we will also tweet out this link to this playlist. If people indicate that they hate Spotify, we'll also, we could put one together on YouTube. Like, all of their music's on YouTube as well. And in fact, there's at least one song that we kind of were maybe going to talk about in this episode and put on the mixtape that isn't on Spotify because some of their really early, very, like, DIY albums are, like, not on Spotify for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't know what the rhyme or reason behind that is because they are on Apple Music, it turns out. Uh Um, But anyway, yeah, no, um, we can definitely put together an alternative playlist if people so desire. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that's the Mountain Goats. They're very, they're they're hard to talk about as like what their music is like or what their songs are about because there's so much of it. Even people that I know who really like the Mountain Goats, including you, Allison, but also some of my other friends, shout out to my friend Sarah, who made me listen to the Mountain Goats for the first time, like haven't listened to all of their music Suffice to say, my knowledge of the Mountain Goats is not particularly encyclopedic. So, yeah. So that's a good... I think that's a good overview. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Should we do, like, a rough, did you like this? Like, do you... Allison, do you like this collection of songs? Do you have any particular favorites from this list? I do like this particular collection of songs because I like everything that John Darnielle does because I first started listening to the Mountain Goats probably around 10 years ago. I am a long time stan. However, this a lot of the songs in this collection were new to me because as Julia just mentioned, like the Mountain Goats have a huge discography. As well, a ton of this discography is stuff that was recorded on a boombox in the early 90s. So the sound quality is like 
eh. <laughs> it's not optimal. Um, and I do like some of the early Boombox stuff, but it's not necessarily the stuff that I like automatically reach to for the Mountain Goats. And as well, there's a lot of stuff. I'm very much a person who like listens to music just like on repeat. So there's some Mountain Goats albums that I know like really, really, really well and some that I've like just never listened to. Yeah, so I did I did enjoy this. I think some of my my favorite like new song out of the songs that I hadn't listened to before was definitely Song for Cleomenes. Is that is that the title? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Song for Cleomenes. So to be clear, this playlist has nine songs on it. We're not going to talk about all of these songs in like a lot of detail, but those nine songs are Day and Era Crush and The Recognition Scene, which are both off of the album Sweden, Spent Gladiator 2, which is off of Transcendental Youth, Up the Wolves, which is off of uh, The Sunset Tree, Against Agamemnon, which is off of Bitter Melon Farm. Young Caesar 2000, which is off of The Pelodi Machine, Song for Cleomenes, which is off of Beautiful Rat Sunset, The House That Dripped Blood, which is off of Tallahassee, and Younger, which is off of, whoops? In League with Dragons. In League with Dragons. Yeah. Yeah. So this is quite a range. We've got quite a lot of albums and like the, the range, Sweden is from 1995, yeah. And Transcendental Youth is from 2012. Yeah. So this and is like a huge... I think Younger is actually from 2018 or something, because In League with Dragons is really recent. Oh, yeah. In League so, with yeah. Dragons is 2019. So, yeah. It's um, like over 20 years span of music. Yeah. And and actually, surprisingly, John Darnielle is like surprisingly consistent in his aesthetic over that time period but you know there's some stuff that's kind of an exception to that that we'll talk about yeah there's definitely like all of these songs sound like the mountain goats yeah okay so well the other thing is is, did you like it yes um yeah right (laughs) i forgot yeah so i i did like this i mean i'll say this i think that of of these songs the only ones i'd heard Spent Gladiator 2 and Against Agamemnon before, and, like, I listened to Against Agamemnon on repeat, but <laughs> outside of Against Agamemnon, none of these are songs that I would call my favorite Mountain Goat songs. I definitely prefer song. like, he has some variations in his style. It's, again, it all sounds like the Mountain Goats, but there are some songs that are, like, you can nod your head to them, and I don't know if any of these really are in that category so much. Yeah. And I pref- happen to prefer those ones. Shout out to No Children, which is the most banger of all of the bangers that John Darnielle has ever written, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. It, th- no Children is a real banger. It fucks. Um, and I listen to it on repeat whenever I'm grumpy. Unrelated. Oh, I listen to one that I really like to listen to is Foreign Object, which the lyrics for are, I'm going to stab you in the eye with a foreign object, but it's in like this like cheerful like chord progression. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> No Children contains the lyric, I hope you die, I hope we both die. Yeah. Which is, like, great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, suffice to say, John Darnielle does some really interesting things with his lyrics, and maybe we should, like, get into it. We should dig in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's start at the top of the playlist, which is Spank Gladiator 2, which I think you have opinions about. Yes, I do. And my, so, the thing about Spank Gladiator 2 is I think it's a really nice example of how John Darnielle uses classical reference um, and just like sort of these very like, specific references in general to to bring across these very sort of like broad and understandable emotions. 
Like, that's something that I really like about his lyrics, is that sometimes he'll use something very specific in a way that, that brings across these sort of, like, very, like, strong, relatable emotions. Yeah, so the particular lyrics in Spent Gladiator that that we have the most attention to here are, like, the lyrics in the first verse, which begins, Like a spent gladiator crawling in the Colosseum dust who can count on his remaining limbs, all the people he can trust. Like it's very, it's this extremely specific image that evokes Mm -hmm. this. I don't know. It's, it's It's, a good song. Yeah. It's this, it's a specific image that evokes this like feeling of desperation that you immediately get this very clear picture of. And so, and I think this is, this is something he does a lot. Like he has an entire album about professional wrestling that is an extremely good album and is very relatable, but it's also an entire album about professional wrestling. Yeah, like, the whole song is very much about, like, about desperation to survive, and, like, like, later on we get the lyric show up in shining colors and then stand there and get hit, Mm -hmm. which is a delightful lyric that really, I think, cuts to, like, what he's talking about, and also, I think, has a lot to do with that image he evokes of the Roman gladiator. Yeah, and I'm actually that lyric, I'm not 100% sure if he's talking about the Roman gladiator or if he is actually talking about professional wrestling because there even though this song is not from the professional wrestling album, <laughs> there's some there's some other lyrics in the song that sort of indicates that he's drawing this like these parallels between these forms of entertainment. There's a line in the song called uh learn to spit some blood at the camera, which I I th- sounds to me like a professional wrestling lyric but either way you get this really nice sort of parallel between these like ancient and modern sort of experiences um which i think is is really beautiful yeah um this this kind of idea of like an almost a performance of defiance against death that is actually rooted in like a very real desperation to survive but it's being put on for an audience that, like, he manages to draw from the ancient gladiator through to, like, and even through to, like, more serious, like, other historical examples. The second verse is is about, like, resistance to, I want to say, like, colonization and, Mm -hmm. like, conquest by a greater power from, like, a small, like, a small community resisting, resisting conquest. Yeah. And particularly through, like, guerrilla warfare. And then the third verse is about, there's, like, a reference to Dresden and like, I would assume the world wars, that whole set, he, he just, he draws it, he draws out this feeling really well by a very precise and well-placed reference to something that people are familiar to mm-hmm. in classical antiquity. Yeah. And you know what? The thing is, is with some of these lyrics, sometimes you have no idea what they mean, but you still understand what he's getting at. Like the lyric that you're talking about, um, which is like a village on the step about to get collectivized. I'm sure he's referencing some specific thing. I don't know what it is, but you still get the essence of the feeling. Damn, I sure (laughs) feel it when he says it. And part of it is that he has started with the gladiator. Yeah. Which, Mm -hmm. as we go on, like, it'll become obvious that, like, by no means are all of his classical references this transparent. A lot of them are like, what the fuck is he talking? Like, if I didn't have a degree in classics, and even with that, I would have no idea what the hell he's talking about. But in this song, the 
opening being the reference to a gladiator, which is something that basically everyone like kind of knows what that is, that really sets up the rest of his references in the song. Yes, it does. And I think also it's worth noting that this is a song that is from the the post-Russell Crowe Gladiator movie. So, because this album's from like 2012, I believe. Uh, Yes, Transcendental Um, Youth was in 2012. Yes. So everybody like has also has this relatively recent like cinematic image of this in their head. So yeah, I think it's it's a really effective lyric. He knows what he's doing. Yes, he does. Speaking of effective lyrics with, like, a pretty transparent reference, the same is true of the next song on our list, which, so maybe we should... Yeah, we can, we can move on. Forge onwards. The next song that we wanted to talk about was Up the Wolves, which... So Up the Wolves is off of The Sunset Tree, which is a 2005 album by the Mountain Goats. It's probably their best known album you've probably heard the song this year which is definitely a pandemic banger uh the chorus of that song is i'm gonna make it through this year if it kills me but this album is very autobiographical um which is actually kind of a little bit different for john darnielle because he actually doesn't tend to write a lot of autobiographical music but it's about his relationship with his abusive stepfather and it is a very very good album Yeah, so that's, and that's, like, kind of, it's a useful thing to know when interpreting this song, I think. Yeah. So the, the relevant lyric is the chorus of this song, which goes, our mother has been absent ever since we founded Rome, but there's going to be a party when the wolf comes home, which is pretty blatantly a reference to Remus and Romulus. Yes. Do you want to, like, tell us who those are? Because, okay, so, disclaimer as usual, because I know fuck all about the Romans. I, like, vaguely know this myth, but I think Allison can maybe explain it better. Yes. So, the story of Romulan Romulus, Romulan, this is this is now a Star Trek podcast. Yes. Um, the story of Romulus and Remus is the founding myth of Rome. So, it, it's, it's the mythological origin story of how Rome gets built. It's not the actual story. Just an FYI, in case... In case people can't tell from the content that it's mythological. So, uh, Romulus and Remus are the the twin sons of the daughter of a king of a city that is nearby what would later become Rome. So Rome does not exist yet at this point. The, the king gets deposed by his brother, and his brother sees his niece's kids as a threat so he orders them to be killed instead they get abandoned um something that happens a lot in mythology and then instead of dying they get rescued and then suckled by a she-wolf and then they're later raised by a shepherd and go on to depose the their uncle um reinstate the um their grandfather on the throne and then they go off to found their own city and then one of them kills the other. Yay! Yes. Which is a thing that Roman historians are like, this is super weird. We have no idea why a founding myth is about fratricide. Very odd thing. But anyway, yeah, they get into a disagreement over which hill to build the city upon. And that ends in one of them killing each other. Also in- something about birds. Incredibly, yeah, it's about augury. Bird right. omens. Okay. Um, one you. of them, they have, a, they have a really petty disagreement about how to interpret the bird omens um and then they kill each other over it which i think is extremely funny well we'll get into further fratricide for later on in the podcast because uh 
I have some things to say about fratricide also that are not related to the Romans. But yeah, suffice to say, uh, this song is about them and specifically the being suckled by a wolf part, which is kind of interesting. Okay, so first of all, here's my one comment about the being suckled by a wolf part, which is that there is like a really horrifying bronze statue of this yes. whole situation. I hate looking at it. Um, And fun fact, the little babies were added later. Oh yeah, yeah. No, the little oh. babies aren't Roman. Okay, so this is there's this statue that we'll tweet a picture of the statue. Most people have probably seen this. It's this bronze statue of this wolf with these two little like cherubic babies like suckling at the wolf's teats. There was no better way to say that. I'm so no, sorry to I, no, everybody. No, 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 I know. <laughs> Just would like to apologize <laughs> for to everybody for having to hear that. Oh, but that's the only way to describe the statue. But yeah, yes. the, the babies were added in the Renaissance. The statue itself is Roman. Of, of, of just the wolf but then the babies were a, a later renaissance edition oh, okay. which is very funny but you can you can actually kind of tell if you look at it stylistically stylistically the babies like look very different than mm-hmm. the wolf um yeah but okay. yeah so the horrific babies are all like the early modern early moderns the early modern people's fault the renaissance people's fault oh boy okay <laughs> well that's good to know anyway this has been a tangent so to go back to, like, the effectiveness of this reference in this song, I think that's similar to Spent Gladiator. This is, like, a coherent classical reference. I think a lot of people would be at least passingly familiar. Not everyone by any mm-hmm. means, but I feel like a lot of people are at least passingly familiar with the myth of Remus and Romulus. And at the very least, their association with wolves. Which is, yeah, so that's, mm-hmm. like, that's that. And this song... To me, it it pokes at, like, an association of, like, motherhood and a particularly, like, a kind of alienated or absent motherhood, but also, like, a predatoriness to the mother figure in that, like, I mean, because obviously, as we mentioned, this album is about his relationship with his abusive stepfather and presumably his mom was, like, not a lot of help. Yeah. For whatever reason. I'm not going to speculate about John Darnielle's life, but, like... I don't know, there's kind of an interesting, there's like an intense mixed familial feeling that is being conveyed here by this quite effective reference to like these kids who got thrown out into the wilderness and were raised by a wolf and then had to leave the wolf and come back and perpetuated violence. Yeah. I also think it's kind of interesting that the like sort of the central lyrics of the the, like chorus of the song is there's going to be a party when the wolf comes home it's because a lot of the lyrics on this album are really about hope in the face of adversity there's a lot of stuff on this album that is like i am in the worst situation but i am going to figure out how to survive it and so there's almost this like there's this really this sense of like hope and like longing for for this like absent mother figure and this idea that like oh when when this mother figure like comes back there's everything's gonna be okay again well and particularly the combination of like this wolf that rescued us back then or rescued me back then and is now i i think this song is kind of about revenge and the idea that, like, oh, the wolf that rescued us back then is going to come back and rescue us again mm-hmm. 
by tearing this bitch apart. Yeah, I that's mean, the vibe to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think that's correct because there's a lot of other really violent lyrics in the song. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm gonna I'm gonna bribe the officials. I'm gonna kill all the judges. It's gonna take you people years to recover from all of the damages. Yeah, and I mean, depending on how hopefully you want to read this, to me. It's interesting to think about this in the context of the fact that, like, the wolf does not come home in the myth. No. The the wolf raises them, and then they are on their own, and Romulus murders Remus. Yeah. I mean, he then goes on to, like, be a, like, a good king TM or whatever, <laughs> but, like, still. He also founded the monarchy of Rome, which, notoriously, the Romans weren't a huge fan of. No kind of anti-monarchy for a while there. Yeah. Until suddenly they became big pro-monarchy again, but whatever. Yeah, don't you know that Augustus was first among equals, Julia? Augustus wasn't a king. (laughs) Augustus, Augustus was just... Being an emperor and being a king are two different things, obviously. Yeah, no, they're very different. For those who aren't familiar with this, the way that Augustus got himself proclaimed emperor was basically by pretending that he just was totally not taking all of the imperial power. Everything's fine. I'm not becoming the king, he says as he slowly amasses all the political power. Yeah. So speaking of amassing all of the political power, let's talk about Young Caesar 2000. This was a great segue. Fuck yeah. <laughs> this was, that was perfect. Okay. So, so Young Caesar 2000 is called Young Caesar, and I think is presumably a reference to Julius Caesar, or uh-huh. possibly to Augustus, but it is an Alexander the Great jam. Okay. Pop, pop off. Pop okay. off for me. Okay. So Young Caesar 2000 is off of Zopelodi Machine, which is a 1994 album. It's a good, fun album. And this song, it's quite short. There's not a lot of lyrics. But as I said, I'm of the opinion that this is an Alexander the Great jam because to me, he is like the quintessential got given power super young, went a little mad with it. And then as he got older, he stopped being taken as seriously and then ended up dying really young. So like several, like the relevant lyrics are like, The song starts out, when I was 12 years old, they put me on the throne, and then it goes on, now I'm 13 and no one takes me seriously, now I'm 13 and they're trying to take away control. I don't know how stupid you all think I am, but as sure as flowers grow along the western wall, some heads are gonna roll. Which is like, first of all, those lyrics slap. It's a great, it's just this song is a bop and I like it. But also to me, this is like super emblematic of the kind of thing that like, happened to Alexander in a way that he ended up taking power really young his he was like 20 something like that roughly mm-hmm. when his father died and he came into a huge amount of power because Philip had already basically conquered the Greek peninsula and was set up to invade Persia debatable whether Philip did indeed intend to invade Persia <laughs> But Alexander certainly went ahead and did it, and he did a real good job, actually, of invading Persia and conquering the shit out of it. And then he died almost immediately. He was 33 when he died. Yep. And, And leading up to his death, there's this really sharp, like, 
he was really young. He gained notoriety. He became power. He was like put into power. He was at the height of his power for a very brief period of time. And then rapidly he started to have problems with the people who put him into that power in the first place, his generals Mm. and so on. There started to be issues because um, particularly because of like cultural stuff, he was starting to adopt Persian norms in order to maintain power in Persia and like be the king of kings. And the Macedonians and the Greeks that followed him, yes, I'm making a distinction. They were somewhat culturally distinct at this point. But the Macedonians and the Greeks who followed him were like not about what he was doing as far as like adopting Persian trappings and his ambitions of conquest were like pretty batshit even compared to like what his army was willing to put up with. Famously, one of the only reasons that he didn't keep marching east past the Indus into India is that his army was like, fuck you. They there was a mutiny and they turned around and went home and he kind of didn't have a lot of choice. But I mean, he was also once he got back to like to Babylon and to that like area, he was set to carry on invading. I think that the plan roughly was to like invade Arabia and conquer the Arabian Peninsula as well. And God, what a world that would have been that we'd be living in now if Alexander had also conquered the Arabian Peninsula. <laughs> I mean, who knows if he'd have been able to do it. Yeah. But he he died. He got sick and died pretty rapidly, actually. In the space of a year, he went from the top of the world to a corpse. <laughs> um, and his empire didn't last very long because they split it like a, yeah. like people fucking dividing a cake with those cups. You seen those fucking gifts where people choppily slice up a cake by like pressing a glass down on it that's what happened to alexander the great's empire (laughs) that's an excellent visual yeah um i will also point out about alexander the great that his part of the reason also that his giant swaths of territory particularly what is now through like like afghanistan and iran he didn't really conquer those he kind of went through with an he kind of marched through with an army and set up a few little like territories he founded some colonies but but those territories he did a lot of negotiating and like marriage alliancing with the existing powers rather than like straight up conquering because his army was not really equipped for fighting in those territories and they were tired. Basically, as soon as he, like, left that area, like, that that was not an area that remained in his control, really, for any sort of, no. in any sort of meaningful way. Yeah. So when you see those giant maps of his territory of control, just, like, chop most of Iran and Afghanistan, like, out of that. Yeah, like, that whole, it's like, not super, yeah. he yeah. didn't really have meaningful political control. No. Yeah. I have opinions about him. Anyways, he's my trash son, which is one of the reasons, and, like, I find Alexander really interesting and particularly this like arc of becoming really powerful really young and then losing all of his power like to me that is this this song captures that really well and the kind of like insanity that comes of being handed all of that power so young and then being like oh actually you're really young and maybe we shouldn't have let you run the world. I'm now realizing that Young Caesar 2000 is probably about one of, like, the early... It's probably about Caligula. It's probably a song about Caligula. I'm just now realizing this. Yeah, so, I mean, this uh, this song is off Zopalodi Machine, which I think is quite heavily influenced by, like, 
the history and mythology of the Aztecs. There's mm. like a reference to Quetzalcoatl in the, one of yeah, the song the, titles two, and stuff. There's two references to yeah, Qu- and, uh, Quetzalcoatl. Yeah, and, and there's yeah, there's like a few other songs that have these kinds of references. So it's worth noting that it's very possible that this song is actually about like an Aztec emperor and neither of us like just neither of us is familiar with like central and south american history and don't know anything about the aztecs yeah i think i mean i think the sort of like broader point is always that caesar is a word for ruler yeah and we all kind of know that yeah so i mean so this song is legible as being about any number of young rulers who kind of went mad with power yeah just to me it's an alexander the great bop I mean, I think I think that's because you love Alexander the Great, but I mean, the, you're I, valid. <laughs> I do love Alexander the Great because I mean, yeah, like, yeah. So, Young Caesar two thousand is is more kind of general. It's it's a song that's legible as as a cla- it's it has a contains a classical reference, but it's legible as being a reference to like a number of materials and and like a number of sources, both classical and non classical. So let's get into the stuff that's like slightly more definitively like this this is a very specific thing we have a couple of those the first one is song for cleomenes yes uh, which is a weird song it's weird and it's very early i think it's 93 or 94 is from uh song for cleomenes is off of beautiful rat sunset which is 94 yeah so it's very early in the mountain goats discography and it's you can really tell that John Darnielle is really sort of experimenting with what he sort of wants the Mountain Goats sound to be at this point. Because there is not an, another Mountain Goats song that I can think of that really sounds like this. Like, this is, a, this is a song where he basically just tells a story, like, he just talks over him strumming the guitar. It's great. I love it. But it is, it's a super weird song. And it's definitely a little bit out there in terms of Mountain Goats discography. Yeah. Song for Cleomenes is, how do you say, weird. One of the things is that it is like, this is like a very specific event that he is narrating. And he starts with a really clear preface of what it is. The first lyrics of the song are 73 years before the advent of the Christian era. Yes. It's like, okay, we're talking about a very specific time period and a very specific place. The song is about this guy, Gaius Verres. I'm going to pronounce his name that way because Roman Latin pronunciation is fake. I mean, Latin pronunciation would sound really stupid in this case. Um, For anybody who doesn't know, there's no V sound in Latin. It's W. So it would be Gaius Juarez, and we don't feel like being obnoxious. So (laughs) So the event in question is this song is based on a series of legal speeches called In Verum or Against Verres which was a series of speeches made by Cicero in 70 BCE. So this guy, Gaius Verres, was a governor of Sicily, which Mr. Goats kindly tells us in the song, was known as uh, Argentum. Agrigentum. Agrigentum in the (laughs) fuck. I immediately fucked it. I I Um, mean, I've excavated in Sicily, so I am big Sicily girl. I know the vaguest of shit about Sicily. Argentum means silver. I would just like to apologize in case this person is listening to uh, the one person I know who is a Sicily historian. Sorry, Jaden. Yeah, we're gonna gonna butcher this. 
But this song's really interesting because, like, I mean, I don't feel the need to go into a huge amount of detail, but essentially he's just adapting the narrative presented in Cicero's, like, legal speech. These speeches were, like, really... So Cicero was, like, prosecuting this guy in court, more or less, such as such as it was in in the Roman Republic. Good job. Um, thank you. Yeah. I'm doing a great job. Can you guys tell I'm not a Roman historian? Anyway, Cicero Cicero sure was a guy. He <laughs> he had a lot of strong opinions about things and he his oratory and particularly his like legal speeches, we have a lot of them and they were really important to his political career and this one apparently was given it, it was like concurrent with his election to to the position of edile adile ideal i, 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 <laughs> I don't I, I think a adile or edile is adile sure it's fine either it's once fine again, it's fine the word is spelled a e d i l e and once again latin pronunciation is fake and I don't know how to do it. Yeah, I don't I know. apologize to any and all classicists listening to this who must hate me. So, yeah, this was like... In some ways, obviously, Cicero, by being like, yeah, this guy really sucks, and now we're gonna tell everyone about how much he sucks, and presumably, I think he gets exiled at the end. It's like, okay, great, good for Sicily. Obviously, they, they helped Sicily out a lot by no longer having this piece of shit dude who was apparently running around fucking people's wives and also, like, burning ships in the harbor with his pirate friends. Um, and just stealing everything yeah, from people. Yeah, just stealing from people. <laughs> like, good that he was not in charge anymore, but also this was, like, a bit of a coup for Cicero, I think, so it was quite important for his, like, political career in a way. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the, the way Roman political careers worked, especially, like, in the late Republic, is a big facet of being a Roman politician is oratory. Like, that's something that, like, noble Romans were, they were expected to be good rhetoricians. Rhetoricians, thank you. They're supposed to be good good at this very particular way of speaking and good at doing defense or prosecution speeches in this way. And, And so... As and also as part of your career as a like noble Roman person, you would try to move up the political ranks. So there are also all these different sort of elected administrative ranks in Roman politics that like by, you know, becoming good at these certain skills, you would try to sort of like work your way up the what we call the cursus honorum. The cursus honorum. Eventually, ideally. The path of honor. Yeah. Roughly. Yeah, I think so. And I think basically the idea is eventually you would become consul, which is the I'm in charge of Rome position. It's the highest office in yeah. the Republic. So this is this is all like framed within Cicero's attempts, attempts to advance his political career. And this is like a normal way of like advancing yeah. your political career and a normal thing for a, a an elite Roman to be doing. Yeah. And apparently Cicero was like, he just got to like, t- to like talk. He really got to, like, narrate this story. So, I mean, I'm going to draw a parallel with the song here. In the same way that Mr. Goats just, like, narrates this story in a way that makes Varys really sound like a piece of shit, Mm -hmm. from what it seems like, that's more or less what Cicero managed to do. He, like, got his foot in the door and he made these big, long speeches and it immediately biased the, what, would have been, what, the Senate that he was 
speaking to? I'm actually not sure. I can't remember how Roman law works as somebody who's taken a course on Roman law. um, I can't actually remember who you were speaking to. I don't know. Whoever he was speaking to, he figured out, like, Varys' defense lawyer, as it were, figured out pretty quickly that Cicero had managed to, like, totally tip the scales against Varys and was like, ah, fuck. And, like, having that amount of freedom to speak was apparently pretty unusual for for Cicero, who was a newly, at that time, a newly enrolled member of the Senate. Mm. And so this was, like... Yeah, it was, as I said earlier, it was a bit of a coup for him politically because he just got to tell this story and really set the stage. And in the same way we get that, like, in this song, we just get the story. And it's quite, I don't know, it's quite, it's quite interesting because, yeah, like, as we said, this is a pretty unusual song for Mr. Goats as well that, like, John Darnielle uses a lot of references, but he doesn't often just tell a narrative in the way that this yeah song Mm -hmm. does so i think there's an interesting parallel between like the source material and this song the 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 nature of the song yeah and i think it it is actually so these sorts of like speeches these like trial speeches it is actually like a normal form of written uh roman literature like if you made a really dope speech you would write it down there are lots of other examples of this genre and it would have been common to portray like a defendant in the way that Cicero is portraying yeah. um, Gaius Ferris. Like the there's a there's a lyric in the song which I think is really excellent which is he stole everything not nailed down. And it's this really modern lyric, but I think it really gets like the energy that Cicero had had towards was, this guy. Yeah. These trial speeches are not really necessarily factual in the way we think about modern law courts functioning they're like super emotionally charged yeah it's about it's about persuading the court that the guy is guilty more than it is about proving that he's guilty yeah which Mm -hmm. is it's a way yeah anyways and i mean say i'm glad that we have evidentiary law yeah well we have quote-unquote evidentiary Mm -hmm. law we don't need to get into Um, that but i will say that one of the things this song made me want is like modern colloquial translations of legal speeches from antiquity because i think there would be a lot of fun ways to like convey the contents of these speeches in a very like loose in like a loose translation in the literal sense but to like capture the the force with which these people spoke because when you just read them it's like it's the rhetoric is so stiff because the language is ends up being translated in this archaic way that it's like, I don't really understand how this is supposed to be persuasive as a modern reader, but it was. Yeah, it was persuasive. And I mean, also, there's a lot of just like really hilarious and petty things in these legal speeches. And yeah, I guess one final thing to say about as far as like the Roman legal system and then in conjunction with this song is is that like one of the lyrics is... The list goes on. When he's talking about his crimes, he says, the list goes on. Trust me, Cicero wrote it all down. <laughs> which is which is what it which is what it was like. Like this was just Cicero was just like listing off all of the shit that he claims that this guy has done. Yeah. And that's evidence. Yeah. Trust me, Cicero wrote it all down. <laughs> anyway, I just think I it's a really interesting song. To get into some more, like, specific references to stuff that are more opaque, 
I wanted to, I really, really want to talk about Against Agamemnon because, first of all, this song fucks, and I listen to it on repeat, and it gives me big feelings. And second of all, it's like a cool, like, sneaky sort of retelling of one of the major emotional beats of Sophocles' Ajax. So I know this, okay, so partial disclaimer, I know this because John Darnielle has actually said that that is what this song is a reference to. You can like look this up. Yeah, so he has said that against Agamemnon is about Ajax. The plot of Sophocles' Ajax is roughly that after the Trojan War, Ajax gets kind of snubbed. He like loses the contest to, for Achilles' armor and he gets big mad at he gets really mad at Odysseus and Agamemnon, and because he's mad at Odysseus, Athena gets mad at him, makes him go crazy. He, like, loses his mind, and he murders a bunch of cattle, and everyone's like, what the hell's wrong with you? And he's he spends a bunch of time in his tent, like, torturing cows, but he is hallucinating that he is torturing the other Greek kings that he's, like, killed, and he's, like, brutally murdering Odysseus and Agamemnon. And then he comes out of this, like, fugue state induced by Athena, and he's deeply ashamed of his, of, like, what's happened to him, and uh, ultimately he ends up committing suicide. Okay, so for me and for everybody else who does not have more than, like, one brain cell devoted to the Iliad, who who is Ajax? <laughs> oh, okay, so this is, so this is, um, this is Telamonian Ajax. There okay. are two, there yep. are two Ajaxes in the Iliad. There's Lesser Ajax, whose patronym I, like, can't remember, and then there's Greater Ajax, aka Telamonian Ajax, aka this Ajax. He is from, uh, Salamis. Oh. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So so he's from Salamis. His, like, father is the king of Salamis, I believe. And his half-brother, Tucare, is, like, also one of the figures in the Iliad and also shows up in this play. So Sophocles' Ajax basically details the events of Ajax, like, waking up from him having murdered this cattle. They might actually be sheep. I can't remember. And A farm live, animal. Lives, livestock, anyways. And, yeah, he basically is like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna... He decides to kill himself in shame, and then he meets with Tecmessa, who is his wife. So this thing happens where seeing her arouses pity in him, and mm-hmm. so he's kind of like, actually, no, I'm not going to kill myself. And then he goes off stage, and we get a bunch of action with Tecmessa and Tucare, Tucare who arrives kind of late, and there's like, oh, if you like, don't let Ajax go out to the beach because if you do he he'll die but he's already gone and they get the warning too late because he's told them so i'm going to quote from the play quickly just cuz i found it this is line 721 in golder and peviar's translation of the ajax Yes, the thought of leaving her a widow surrounded by enemies and my son an orphan moves me to pity, but I will go to a bathing place and the salt meadows to be cleansed of this filth, and I may still escape the weight of the goddess's anger. And finding some trackless place, I will dig up the earth and bury this sword of mine, the most hostile of weapons, where no one will find it. So he's basically said, like, 
He says in Tegmes's hearing, I'm going to go off and I'm going to bathe and try to cleanse myself of Athena's anger and I'm going to bury my sword so that I don't harm myself or anyone else with it, basically. And he leaves. He goes off stage. And as far as anyone is aware, he's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Because that's what he's expressed. And he changes his mind while he's off stage. And when he comes back on stage, he actually we believe that he may have committed suicide on stage, which is very uncommon in Greek tragedy. Almost never does the violence actually take place on stage. And Against Agamemnon, the song, it like conveys the important part of this story so clearly. The first verse is like him in the tent where he was doing these like acts of torture to the livestock and he steps out of the tent And then we get, I went out to the front and saw the purple sky making jokes about my condition. Like, he's seen that the heavens, the gods, are fucking with him, essentially. And then the last verse, we get these, I'm like, I can't sing it, but if you listen to it, it's this very, like, ponderous, almost, I am going for a walk, I'll be back in half an hour, watch over the children, I'll be back in half an hour, and then we get music, and that's, like, the end of the song. Because that's basically what Ajax says, is like, keep an eye on my son. I'm going for a walk. I'll be right back. And he he doesn't come back. He dies. Oh, gut punch. <laughs> Every time I listen to this song, because it's so, it's so simple, but it conveys this narrative so clearly. And there's like certain kind of nods to like the circumstances and to the specific details of Sophocles' Ajax without being really heavy-handed with the references. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think something like, I'm I'm going for a walk, I'll be back in half an hour, has this very, again, it's it's another example of this very, like, modern, these, these very modern lyrics that portray the, like, feeling of the play in the sense that's really visceral to, like, a modern person. Yeah, it's a very effective way to, and like he does such a good job of conveying this sort of difficult and fraught state of mind, even without, I mean, obviously knowing that this song is about Ajax and like what happens after, like knowing that makes it a lot clearer, but I think that the feeling comes through in the song and I stand. Yeah. And I also, I don't think, something I don't think we've really mentioned yet is it just from sort of an aesthetic perspective, John Darnielle's poetry is really good. Like, the the sounds he's choosing to use in particular places, like, the contrast between, like, complex words and very, like, straightforward words. Like, just the sound, the, the feeling comes through a lot in just, like, the sounds of the words that he's using. Yeah. The combination of words, like... Even if you don't know specifically what he's referencing or what he's getting at, you really get the feelings and you can really appreciate the song just purely on, like, the merit of the artistry. Yeah. Another song that I only, like, know is a classical reference because John Darnielle said something about it is The House That Dripped Blood. So The House That Dripped Blood, it's off Tallahassee. And in 2017, I believe, there's, he, like, tweeted, somebody else was talking about it. I actually found this tweet. I'll retweet it when we post this episode. It was actually somebody else was, like, 
this song is about Agamemnon. And he was like, oh, has somebody finally noticed that the house that dripped blood is an Atreus jam? Which (laughs) it totally is. Oh my God. So it totally is. The title, The House That Dripped Blood, is a reference to something that Cassandra says in Aeschylus's Agamemnon, which is the first play in the Oresteia. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, yeah, when she's, like, giving her sort of pseudo-soliloquy, she's going back and forth with the chorus, but she's by herself on the stage, and she's talking about, she's trying to convey the bad stuff that she, like, has seen happen, and will is seeing that is like going to happen and obviously because this is cassandra we're talking about the chorus is like that's not what are you talking about you crazy person but obviously she's right yeah for a reminder for anybody who doesn't know who cassandra is cassandra is the daughter of priam big troy king yeah um who who like has prophecy but nobody believes her prophecies so yeah she's she's cursed she has the gift of prophecy, but she's cursed um, not to be able to tell anyone. And she, yeah, she talks about, like, the bloody walls of the house. And they, this, the house in question is the house of Atreus. Uh, Atreus is Agamemnon and Menelaus's father. And this family line has some shit, let us say. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of murder. Uh-huh. And there has been... an a not insignificant amount of fratricide and also cannibalism. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, well, okay, is it cannibalism if the gods are eating your kids? Because gods aren't technically I mean, Thyestes, <laughs> Thi- I mean, Atreus fed Thyestes his own children. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that part. Yeah, yeah, no, there is also... Because yeah. there's... So, in case y- y'all want to know how much cannibalism there is in this family line, there's a different instance of cannibalism there are that multiple, I'm talking about. Yeah, there are multiple cannibalism incidents. So, the, like, progenitor of the house is Tantalus, who is, like, famous for feeding the gods human flesh, and then... The, he, the human flesh being his own son, which yeah, he his, chopped up into little pieces. Yeah, <laughs> and... If you've ever heard the word tantalizing, that comes from his name because he is cursed. He's like Sisyphus. He's been, he has an eternal punishment in the underworld. And his is that he's like eternally hungry and thirsty. But when he reaches for food or water, it like slides away from his hands. So he can never like sate his hunger or quench his thirst. Big fucked up. So, which I mean, that's what you get for murdering your own child and then feeding him to the gods yeah um and then we get like a couple generations later we get atreus and thyestes thyestes is atreus's older brother seneca has a great thyestes play uh it's one of the few surviving roman tragedies and it's like it is being that it is roman very gory (laughs) the spectacle was there yeah so thyestes and atreus I'm unclear as to what order they... Uh, it's fine. It doesn't, doesn't really matter, matter what... <laughs> anyway, suffice to say, the two of them actually... They're sons of the king... Uh, their their father was king of Olympia, and they get exiled from Olympia because the two of them murdered their half-brother. And then when they get to Mycenae and end up like becoming kind of kings there, Atreus becomes king by murdering... Thyestes' two sons and feeding them to him. The reasons for all of this are complicated and ultimately don't matter as much as the fact that, like, there's a lot of really bloody history in this family. They keep murdering each other. So, yeah, it's like fucking 
Tantal is murdering his own children. I'm not sure about Thyestes and Atreus's father. Th- so Thyestes and Atreus's father is Pelops, who is the chil- who is the child who was murdered, but he gets put back together. I don't know if anything happens to him after he gets put to get back together after being murdered. Yeah, he like. I don't know. I don't know if we need to go through all of it in no. detail. It's fine. In any case, basically all of the generations, there's a lot of murder. Oh, P- Pelops was fucking Poseidon. Good for him. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay, so he like, yeah, so Tantalus murdered his own child. Pelops murdered some other guy. Thyestes and Atreus murdered their brother, and then Atreus murdered Thyestes, and then Atreus' sons are Agamemnon and Menelaus, who, like, have quite a lot of blood on their hands, but Agamemnon in particular murders his own child and then gets murdered by murdered by his own wife, and then she gets murdered by his by their son. Murder all around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hence the house that dripped blood. Yeah, no, we've got murder, cannibalism, and human sacrifice. We really got, we've got all the elements here. It's really just a bit of a mess. Yeah, as far as fucked up families in classical mythology go, the -hmm. House of Atreus is, like, the gold standard. Yeah. And so this song, there aren't a lot of explicitly classical lyrics. Like, the the reference is largely in the title. But there is one lyric, root out the wine-dark honeyed center, and specifically the use of the word wine-dark in in and of itself is a classical illusion because yeah, it's Homeric. That's that's Homer Homer refers to the sea as wine dark like all the time. Yeah. Like right, left, and center. And I also I mean, maybe this is just me reading in because I'm so familiar with the House of Atreus, but the last kind of six lines of the song are or five lines of the song are but let me tell you, brother, still waters go stagnant, bodies bloat, and the cellar door is an open throat. Which to me is really evocative of a lot of this like cannibalism and murder that is happening in the family history that it's like a nod to, you know, skeletons in the closet, right? Yeah. What have you got mm-hmm. buried in your cellar? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the the lyrics are, very, are sort of like more modern and more sort of like general, but yeah, I think they can all sort of be tied back to the. I think it's all story. legible as a reference, and and I do think that mm-hmm. it is that it is that title that makes it that makes it legible as this kind of reference. Most clearly, it's a good song. I actually like I like the song. Yeah, and I mean thematically, it the song is like shares a lot of themes with the rest of the album because the rest of the album has a lot of stuff about like marital discontent and strife. Like no children is a song about like hating your spouse yeah Um, hating your spouse so much that you wish you were both dead yeah game shows touched touched our lives is a song that's about like not paying attention to like the disrepair that's around you and creating like a a sort of fantasy for yourself to live in like there's a lot of stuff about like familial and marital problems in in this album so it like fits really nicely within those themes <laughs> yeah and it's all spooky and i don't know it's a great it's a good song and a good album and and i think that it utilizes the classical reference effectively to evoke that kind of bloody family history you yeah. know mm-hmm. that like as i said the the house of atreus both above him in generations and below him in generations is like the gold standard of like if you want a fucked up family 
that that's what you look at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that really sort of speaks to like all of John Darnielle's like classical references. Is it they're all very well used. Like he is yeah. really good at using classical material in an effective way. He is Mr. Yeah. Pro adaptation. In that in that both that he manages to he manages to make the classical relevant to the modern, but he also uses modern phrasing and other more modern references to make the classical understandable and relatable to a more modern audience. Yes. Mm-hmm. It goes both ways, and I think that's the sign of a really graceful and effective reception yes. of this material. Yes. So the last couple of songs on this playlist are all more marginal references. So Younger is, Younger in particular just has like one lyric in it that is, it's a great lyric. And I think it follows on from what we were just talking about that he seems to like making references to the like greater mythos of the House of Atreus. The, towards the end of the song, he sings, this whole house is doomed. Even the big parts get consumed. Prepare a grave for Menelaus. Which is like, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, Menelaus's death is like not, to be honest, like I'm going to fully admit that I don't know what he's getting at with this lyric. Yeah, neither do I. It sounds cool, though. <laughs> it sounds really cool. And I'm sure that there is, like, this is the thing is having listened to a bunch of his other music and seeing what he's getting at, I firmly believe that there is something there. I just, like, I'm not making the connection, but I firmly believe that there is one. And dear listeners, if any of you, like, have listened to the song and happen to know, have some, like, better idea if a light bulb goes on for you, please tweet at us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We really want to know. And there's sort of a similar thing in that there are, the last two songs are both off of the album Sweden, and neither of these is a really blatant, or both of these have blatant references in their titles, and one of them also has a blatant reference in the lyrics, but I'm not sure. Particularly with the recognition scene, which is a reference specifically to tragedy and to Aristotelian poetics, which describes this particular scene of of recognition that is very fundamental to the structure of Greek tragedy. Do you want to explain what whatever you just said was? Because I don't even know what Aristotelian poetics means. Okay, so <laughs> once upon a time, there was some motherfucker named Aristotle. Oh, God. I mean, I do have a deep hatred in my heart for Aristotle, even though I don't know that much about him, aside from the fact that he was, like, deeply, deeply misogynistic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's fine. Whatever. I don't like him very much either, but I'm not really a philosophy person. Anyway, he wrote he wrote a, a manuscript called The Poetics, where he describes the kind of patterns of patterns of stuff that happen in that like happens in Greek tragedies that like makes it good. Like what makes it what makes it effective. He talks a lot about tragedy. He talks about other stuff too, but he talks a lot about tragedy. If you've ever heard people talk about like catharsis and the idea of like receiving catharsis from a piece of literature where you like feel pity and fear and by feeling those things when consuming a piece of literature, in his case, it's specifically in the theater, then you like release those emotions and you can go back to being like a regulated human being. That comes from Aristotle. 
Nice. Okay. Yeah. So he had some ideas that are like, have sort of continued to be useful and that people have continued to poke at for Mm -hmm. like ever. I don't think he was right about a lot of stuff. And he's also very prescriptive. Like the Poetics is a very prescriptive document Mm. about like what is good about literature. And it's based on his idea. It's like, no, this is just what you like, sir. But (laughs) suffice to say, one of the things he does is he describes like structural, like narrative elements and one of those things is the recognition scene. Mm. And I do not understand why John Darnell titled this song that, but that's what it's a reference to. Okay. So what is the recognition scene? So it's the scene where a character like recognizes or realizes something because tragedy often hinges on some piece of information that's been concealed from the characters, although often the audience does know. So for example, to give an example that a lot of people would already be familiar with, the scene in in Oedipus Tyrannus Mm -hmm. or Oedipus Rex or Oedipus the King, whatever, the main Oedipus play, where he figures out that his wife is his mother... That's the recognition scene. Okay, yeah, that, that um, makes sense. Same thing, there's the scene in in Libation Bearers, which is the second play in the Oresteia, where Orestes, or Orestes and Electra, like, rec- recognize each other, where Electra realizes that Orestes is her, her brother and that he's back. That's, like, a turning point of the plot because it means that suddenly they can, like, scheme to murder their mother together. <laughs> or, like... In Ion, when Creosa realizes that Ion, that the boy she's been trying to murder this entire time is actually her son, the recognition scene can come at different points in the play, and it often, sometimes it it is towards the very end and comes at the, because of, like, a deus ex machina, and it's very, like, it completely changes the course of everything, or turns a feeling of righteousness into a feeling of tragedy because somebody realizes that they've done something fucked up due to the recognition, like, the exact narrative purpose that it has varies a little bit, but that moment of recognition is often pivotal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Greek tragedy facts. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, speaking of really pivotal recognition scenes, the last song here uh, is Dayanera Crush, which is, so Dayanera is the second wife of Hercules or Heracles if we're going to go with the Greek which mm-hmm. I am going to because you're obnoxious and you like Greek shit. Yeah, I sure. Am. <laughs> also because also because I'm going to because Deanira appears in in another Sophocles play the the Trachinii or the the women of Trachis um where she Heracles returns from a conquest with a pretty new wife or not wife, but, like, concubine, slave mm-hmm. girl that he is going to have sex with. And she's like, oh, what a bummer. And she, basically, she kind of gets tricked into putting this stuff, this, like, she doesn't know it, but it's poison. Mm-hmm. She thinks it's a love potion that she got from a centaur. <laughs> and she puts it on this cloak that she sends to him because she wants to, like, make him be in love with her again, but it kills him. Yep. He gets big dead. Yeah. There's a direct reference to that in the lyrics of the song that that Heracles was killed by an article of his own clothing. And I think that the song in general is a kind of reference to, like, relationships where the other person is, like, hurting you without 
them necessarily meaning to, but, like, that's still what they're doing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's fucked up. It's, the song in general has that message. And, yeah, like, Dayanera, she loved Heracles a lot. That was why she did the thing that she did in the first place. And mm-hmm. she ends up committing suicide, like, when she finds out. See, again, the recognition when she learns that what she's given him is actually poison. Mm. But... It's very fraught, and because she obviously didn't mean to. Yeah, and I mean, I think that, yeah, this is an, another thing that's, like, broader relation, broader sort of emotional resonance, where, yeah, we can all sort of relate to causing somebody that we deeply care about, like, a lot of pain unintentionally. Yeah, and particularly in pursuit of our own, our own well-being in that relationship. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. like, what she wants is for him to love her back. Yeah. Because she loves him so much, and she ends up murdering him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is I, obviously an extreme example. <laughs> I, I will also point out that I could not find this song when I searched it, because I think it was, like, misspelled. Yeah, it's spelled D-E-I-A-N-A-R-A in on Spotify, yeah. which... And um, on Apple Music. Yeah, and I think that that is just... It's um, not a common transliteration of the word Dayanara. Of course, these words are initially, like, originally in ancient Greek, so they're, you know, I mean, the transliteration is kind of arbitrary, but it's not a common transliteration. Yeah, that is, that is the way, and I mean, okay, to be clear, it can also be, it's also transliterated, like, the Wikipedia article, the title of the Wikipedia article about her transliterates it, D-E-I-A-N-I-R-A. Yeah. Deanira. I think it's either an epsilon iota, so, Mm. like, an E-I or an eta in Greek. I don't. Yeah, I guess people don't know how to transliterate the A sound, because that's not a sound we use in English a lot. Yeah. But it's so weird to me that because the first half of her name is spelled Delta, Eta, Iota, Alpha, mm-hmm. which is like an incredibly fucked up collection of vowels. Yeah. Or Delta, Eta, Iota, Subscript, Alpha, which depending I mean, on if you're in Europe or America. There's this fucked up uh, translation. Yeah, I mean, uh, de- yeah, with the J for the for the Y sound, De Ya Nera. I mean, whatever, that's fine. Suffice to say, her name is hard to spell, Uh and Mr. Goats has used a non-standard transliteration in the title of this song, which made it kind of hard to find. Yes, yes. (laughs) This one's a a pretty fun song. I I just, yeah, it's like a slightly more, I mean, I guess it's like closer to the category of against, well, not against Agamemnon, but maybe something like Up the Wolves, where... There's a classical reference being used here to evoke a certain mood. And those for for those for whom the classical reference is legible as what it is, like if you are familiar with the Trekinii, this like adds a whole other layer of what's going on. But even if you aren't, it's like pretty effective. Yeah. I just uh, the verdict of this episode, I think, is that John Darnielle makes a lot of references to classical material and they are all and they're very diverse in like how he makes references he makes both oblique and very direct references to stuff but they're all really effective yeah the the point is it just that we are mountain goat stands so 
Which, so I guess, and that's, like, probably a good time for us to say that, so, for anybody else who's a Mountain Goat stan, you're probably wondering why we decided to do this mixtape instead of the way more obvious classical, like, set of classical references, which is the 2020 album Songs for Pierre Chauvin, which is about, it's based on a, like, history written by a guy named Pierre Chauvin, who was a historian of, like, like, late antiquity, and particularly the transition from like the last gasp of Hellenistic paganism before Christianity completely took over. Well, sort of. Not just Hellenistic paganism. Anyway, the last, the we'll quote get unquote last gasp of paganism. Strong quotes on those. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about in that. Like, we'll talk about that whole album. We plan to devote an episode to it. But one of the things we wanted to get our hands on Pierre Chivan's book before we do that episode, just so that we would have we could make some slightly more coherent references. So, and we haven't been able to do that yet because neither of us has current access to an institutional library because both of us are between degrees. Yes, I have to get my roommate to get the book for me. (laughs) We're living in COVID times and that means that alumni are not allowed to take books out of the library. Which, fair enough, but it's still annoying for us in this particular situation. So look forward to our episode on... The Mountain Goats album, Songs for Pierre Chauvin, forthcoming at some future point. And I'm sure it'll be great when it does. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. We'd like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our next episode in two weeks, as foreshadowed in this episode, will be on the film Gladiator, starring Russell Crowe. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.